Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Thursday, July the 21st, 2022. And this is episode 3,128 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Thursday. That's time for a listener council Q&A, I'm sorry, expert council Q&A show. And uh, today we have a great lineup. I've got in the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, Ron Paul and Dan McAdams uh, with two segments uh, with both of them on it. One is being about being punished for impossible green energy transitions. And the other one is Dr. Bricks. Remember Dr. Bricks? I called her Dr. Ascot. Uh, Dr. Neckscarf, right? Uh, Dr. Bricks confesses about the lies that destroyed lives in her new book. It, it's, and it's not like I'm coming out to tell you all the shit we did wrong. It's like it's, I'm coming out to tell you all the stuff we did right, but in doing so, she just basically pukes up a lot of truth in it. I'm sure it's not all, but a lot of truth in it about how wrong they really were and how they really couldn't find their own ass with their left or their right hand. Um, and then Chris Rossini from the Ron Paul Group We'll talk about the question, are gold prices rigged? Nick, Ver Nick Ferguson will talk about using sawdust and chicken runs. Ben Falk about cold frames. Jessica Dixie Mills will talk about prepping for a 100-mile of Maine wilderness section of the Appalachian Trail. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about blue zones, what they are, and how it relates to keto diets. Tim Toolman Cook is going to talk about zero-turn tires, fuel stabilizer, and ratchet straps. And I got an email today, this morning, from a guy that's going through a real rough patch. And I don't really know what to tell him. But it coincides with something that I'm experiencing this week that I mentioned on yesterday's episode about flow. And that is what happens when you focus on the problems of others. So today I have a quote of the day from Les Brown. He said, help others achieve their dreams, and you will achieve your dreams. Right? You'll achieve yours. Now, I think the way Les meant it, and it's, you know, Zig Ziglar, uh, Tony Robbins, everybody in that kind of personal improvement, success genre of public speaker has a version of this. You know, if I help enough people get what I want, what they want, eventually I'll get what I want. Uh, I think that was Zig Ziglar. Um, and I know how they mean it, and I do think it's true. But when I talk about it, I'm going to mean a little bit differently. So instead of seeing, oh, I'm going to help this person out in a way that actually directly or indirectly benefits me, I'm going to help this person out, period. But when I do so, I'm going to absorb for a time their problems. Now, I don't mean their personal problems. I guess it could be that. I mean that you're going to focus on the solution to their issue as an independent third party without emotional attachment to it and immerse yourself in it. And in the world of business, we call that consulting. And something really great has happened to me this week. The, the level of productivity that I've had this week, the number of problems that I've solved this week, the number of accomplishments that I've had this week, would be more typical of doing three weeks. And it's not like I work 20 hours a day. I feel like I could have. And I'm going to talk about how my recent experience having Joel Riles here from Fortress K9 and K9 Academy and focusing on his business applied there. And hopefully, maybe, 
That might help this individual. And it'll make sense when I talk about it. But again, just I like these quotes of the day on the expert counsel shows to chew on as we go through. Uh, and it has something to do with my segment today about running background pra- uh, processes in your brain. So I'll give it to you one more time. Les Brown said, help others achieve their dreams, and you will achieve yours. And with that, let's go ahead and hear from Ron Paul, Dan McAdams, and Chris Rossini. Here is the transport secretary sitting before Congress saying that the pain Americans feel at the pump is a benefit, is a good thing. If you're out there and you can't pay your bills, that's good. We're happy about it because it's going to force you to get 60 grand and buy an electric car, right? Everyone's going to go get 60,000 bucks and buy an electric car. They're fibbing when they're saying that this transition, this transition to a green energy, you know, windmills and solar. Yeah. And, and the facts do not conform that they could possibly do that. And, uh, matter of fact, uh, there are some who, uh, think it, you know, even the effort's gonna make it much worse. Because they're gonna, because first what they wanna do is lock down and punish, which Biden has done in a year and a half, uh, punish the people who, who said that hydrocarbons we can live with. Yeah. And is, we're gonna have trouble living without them, is, is what the problem is going to be. Uh, I cannot see, uh, much movement in that direction, but it's propaganda for them. The propaganda is for, uh, you know, the green energy. And uh, if you're not loyal to that, then you're not woke. Uh, this, this, I mean, if anything, this shows what's happened to the Democratic Party uh, that once was the Democratic Party of my grandfather, a blue-collar worker, now has basically said, forget you, we don't care about you. You're feeling pain? That's great. What she reveals in her book, inadvertently, of course, because it's a book, it's 520-some pages of patting herself on the back. <laughs> but as Jeff Tucker points out, uh, it's all a big lie. She She's admitting in the book, in her own words, that she subverted the president, she subverted the administration, she lied, she cheated, she stole, <laughs> right? She did all of those yeah, things. Nice person. And she's happy about it, you know. She is, um, she was the force behind the throne pushing for lockdowns. That's what she wanted. But she didn't dare call it that. And she, she was determined to call it something else, uh, but to actually get a lockdown. Let's put up that first clip because this is important. This is Peter McCullough, who you remember, Dr. Paul, is a real hero. Um, and he, he's the person who was a victim of people like Burks. Um, he was telling the truth all along. And here's what he tweets about Burks. She w- reworked reports to fuel the false narrative of asymptomatic spread. Sounds like she really believed this was the first illness in the history of medicine that spread between two perfectly healthy persons. Distorted, unlawful, worked to hurt so many Americans. And let's do the next one because this is a good headline. It says a lot. Sabotage. Dr. Burks admits to revising and hiding info from Trump's COVID team while altering CDC guidelines without approval. This is pretty heavy stuff that she's admitting. She's saying, well, I'm a hero in doing all these things. But the reality is she destroyed a lot of lives many more lives than were destroyed by the COVID virus itself. I see her as somebody who really enjoyed power. Uh, yeah. But the power that she wanted was to, uh, you know, arbitrarily regulate other people. But at the same time, she thought it was perfectly all right uh, to not pay any attention to her in her personal life. I think that's really the big message here. 
you know, a common uh, question that you tend to see when gold doesn't act like you think it should act is, well, are are the uh, gold markets rigged? Well, I mean, the the entire earth is peppered with central banks, so the question kind of answers itself. And we have to remember that gold, like oil, is a very, very politicized economy. And the authorities do not want people to think about gold. As far as you're concerned, you, you know, gold is the color of a crayon and that's it. Now, while the public is not supposed to think about gold, they have to think about it all the time. Because if the public ever starts to think about gold, they're in big, big trouble. So, uh, you know, there are people out there who explain how all these rigging schemes are very good at it. They get into the weeds of how all these schemes work. But the point we want to make here on this show is that rigging can only happen for so long. The truth always has the final say in the end. And you could just think about the last few years of COVID with the distancing, the lockdowns, the masks. That was rigging. That was the rigging of our social lives, you know, and they started it and they kept it going. Even when people are like, hey, this is not only not working, this is only making things worse. But they kept it going, kept it going, and two full years had to go by when they finally couldn't keep it going anymore. The rigging had to stop, you know, and the people that were doing the rigging were very upset. They wanted to keep it going, the lockdown's a mess, but it was over. So the same thing will happen with gold rigging. They'll keep it going as long as they can, but the point will be reached where the real market price of gold will assert itself, and the people that are doing the rigging will be upset. So I just want to throw a couple of comments in about Dr. Neckscarf before we move on to something more practical, like sawdust is using it, using sawdust uh, in a chicken run. But Dr. Neckscarf... The fact that she literally admitted to doing things that I would say are federal-level felonies, if not simply so indecent and so immoral that she should forever be known as a complete piece of human waste, not worthy of the oxygen that trees produce on her behalf. And she should go apologize to every tree that's ever made her one gram of oxygen for the things that she did, and then she goes out and runs her mouth about it in her book. And in the editorial process, nobody ever went and said, hey, stupid, don't do this. It shows me something. That these people are such pathological sociopaths that they actually think it's okay to do evil for the purpose of what they perceive in their mind as good, And what's good in their mind is whatever it is that they want. And that they'll do it and they'll, they'll, they'll flagrantly flaunt it. And that shows you something about their mentality. But I'll say something else about this. Sociopaths, psychopaths, especially ones that achieve that level of bureaucratic power, they're also not stupid. And even though this reveals something about them, it also reveals something about the system in which they operate. If If for one second, Dr. Nexcarf, if for one second she thought that she would face any consequences for her actions, she wouldn't have wrote that shit in the book. She would have thought about it as she was writing. Well, oh shit, I could go to the I could go to the clink for this. I could get strung up for this. I would say her actions are no less than treason against her own country because intentionally doing harm to your own country from a position of such power. Lying to the president, presidential administration you work for 
This is the very definition of treason. And I don't have to like Donald Trump to say that. If she was working for Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton when she did the exact same thing, I would say it's just as treasonous. And I'll tell you what, friends and neighbors, if you would change your answer based on who was president, then you're not being logical in your decisions. And you're letting perception bias lead you. Just my thoughts. With that, let's move on. Uh, like I said, something more practical here. Nick Ferguson talking about using sawdust that you can acquire for free for your chicken run. Hey there, Nick Ferguson here from Homegrown Liberty calling in with another expert counsel answer. And this one is about sawdust. And this is Dylan asking, is sawdust okay to use in a chicken run? I am close to working out a deal with a local school district to use their food waste to feed our chickens, the Billy Bond method. One local source of biomass we have is sawdust from a sawmill down the road. My thought was to use this in the chicken run where it won't be a respiratory issue and the chickens will scratch it in with the food waste. Thanks, Dylan. The short answer is yes, it's totally fine. Actually, this is one of my favorite strategies. I would possibly tweak it a bit, though. There's kind of two ways to jump with this. And to be honest, either are fine, but one might just pay off even better than the first. You can go with the deep bedding, open run thing, and just toss all the compostables in there. Let them pick through it all, and it'll be pooped on and rained on. And you'll lose some nutrients, but it's going to make compost. And... To be completely honest, I'm not familiar with what Billy is doing. I haven't watched his video on it. But if it's the same as Jeff's chicken tractor on steroids, then it's perfectly fine. All of these methods make for good compost. I would consider something a little bit different, though. And this is just me. <clears throat> what I've done in the past is a deep bedding using router shavings and sawdust. So it's a bit lighter and fluffier and less dusty than straight sawdust but I don't think it would make much of a difference. Probably not a big difference. And I would have that sawdust about 12 to 18 inches thick to start with. However big your building area is, where your chickens are gonna be, you're gonna have to size it to your chickens and the influx of food matter. And honestly, I would put that food waste straight onto the bedding if you're doing a bunch of it, if you're not doing a ton of it, I mean, if we're talking about a whole school, this is probably going to be a crap ton of food waste. So probably just put it straight into the bedding. This needs to be in a roofed structure so that you can keep it bone dry and you need good ventilation. So if you keep it dry, then it's not going to be breaking down as quickly. They will eat what they can. The rest will dry out in the high carbon dry sawdust material. If there's good ventilation, it should wick most of that moisture away. If it's dry, it isn't breaking down. Now, here's the thing. It's not breaking down. It's not composting. You won't be losing nitrogen. Then once or twice a year, or however often you can accumulate two to three foot of material, scrape it all out of there, wet it down really good, and throw all of that into Johnson Sioux bioreactors. Or better yet, wet it all down and put it in a massive hoop house static pile if you're talking about a larger operation. Again, using Dr. David's principles for beam compost, you'll have a superior compost product. And while it might take longer, it will be amazing stuff. That's what I would do. Again, if that's too complicated, don't worry about it. Just use the whole Billy Bond, Jeff 
chicken tractor on steroids thing and just roll with it. You're going to make great compost. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But if you wanted to get really amazing with it, I would go with the Johnson Sioux Bioreactor. Honestly, guys, I think Dr. David Johnson has come up with one of the most important and revolutionary and powerful agriculture innovations in the last 200 years. That's not hyperbole. I'm, I'm being serious. I think it's amazing. So I hope that answers your question, man. I'm going to be making a quick trip to Central Texas in the next couple of weeks and then headed to Eastern Tennessee, possibly all the way to the East Coast to North Carolina, South Carolina on a consulting tour. Let me know if you want to get in on the action and work out some plans for your property before the fall. I mean, autumn, not the fall of the U.S. Just kidding. But seriously, I'll be on a somewhat tight schedule this time. So send your email ASAP to get on the roster and logistics and all the scheduling worked out. You can find a write-up and description of a typical consult, as well as pricing info on homegrownliberty.com forward slash consulting, or just look up there and click on the consulting tab. And if you want to get an accurate quote on pricing, send me an email, preferably with lat and long coordinates for the driveway entrance for whatever property you're talking about having me come out to. That way I can get location data and work out the logistics on the pricing because mileage is worked into there. So uh, send that to me in an email at uh, nick at homegrownliberty.com with consulting in the subject line, and I'll get back with you. I'm Nick Ferguson with Homegrown Liberty. Do good things. So I want to just a little bit about the Billy Bond thing. Um, I met Billy in Tennessee, and we haven't actually worked out a complete total. Yeah, I'm doing it, uh, and here I come, and this is the dates yet. But I think we're like 99% because I'm like, do you want to come down? And he's like, yeah, I do. And I'm like, are you sure you can do it in November? He's like, yeah, I can. So Billy Bond is probably going to be here at Nine Mile Farm for our November workshop. And I'm getting a lot of people who will mention it now going, when's it going to be? It will be Wednesday through Sunday. The week of November 11th. And if it's five years from now, unless I say otherwise, fall TSP 2020-whatever, 2030-whatever workshops will be the week of November 11th, Wednesday through the Sunday, unless there's some major change, because it's been that way for the last at least five years. And I'll just real quick say why, and then I'll get on with my my addition to this one. Um, my, My why of that is... It's as far out in the year as we can put it, where we're guaranteed a pretty decent weather. It could be a little warm, it could be a little cold, but it's no severe either way. It gives Dorothy and I the longest lead time up to it in the fall, which is a busy time to get all the food, prep, pre-prep work, all that done. And it's about two weeks before Thanksgiving. If we went out one more week, we feel like we're stacking it too close on Thanksgiving. So it ain't really that it's Veterans Day. It's not like we decided we would do it on Veterans Day. It's that that just happens to be the week that is pretty much work the best. Our staff is generally free to come from their normal lives, things like that. So that's what it's going to be. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to work with Billy and maybe an active workshop here. And, and I'm planning this year to theme my days a little different, have some maybe less speakers, more in-depth knowledge. So I'm giving Nick two hours on basically feeding your animals without the feed store, the apocalypse-proof method of feeding. Billy is actively doing a way of feeding your animals for little to nothing 
from the existing waste streams that may or may not be available if we have a total apocalypse. I don't think we're going to have a total apocalypse. Some of that stuff might get shut down, though. But while it's here, we should use it. So having those two guys, I'm going to have them present right, you know, one right after the other. And I want to work with Billy on taking what I do, which is Johnson Sioux-like bioreactors, which are very low-tech. By the way, Nick's like, yeah, that's it. That's what I do. He's like, I'm not building the big, giant, giant, tall ones either. And cutting my six-foot circle goat fence in half and feeding the chickens all the compostables in those so they can't spread it out, so it doesn't have to be turned. So they can go up and into it, maybe only fill it a foot deep, and it's, a, it's got a, you know, enough of a rise that they really can't kick much out of it. And then you just put a full-size one right next to it, combine two with carbon, turn it into Johnson Sioux, and do another one. So it would be a chicken tractor on steroids, but there would be a dump, a refill, no turning. And I think that is really kind of exciting. And with the work we plan on doing with the American Breast Chicken, um, guys, I think this could get really, really exciting. Producing meat birds for zero to very low-cost feed inputs and compost at the same time without turning. And I, I have to say this again about the compost that we're making. I can't even explain it to you. You... you you are going to have to make some for yourself or find someone that's done it, and you're going to have to touch it. You're going to have to see it. And if you watch the videos on Johnson Suit Bioreactors, it's not quite there. It's somewhere between normal compost in there. It's like clay, but not as clay as theirs is. And I've literally had plants that just don't look happy and make three or four little balls of it the size of, like, the big shooter marbles and bury it around the plant like pellets, and water it in for a couple of days, and watch the plant recover. It is freaking magic, and I don't believe in magic. I believe in the spirit of magic, and in the spirit of magic, it's magic. Okay, next up, cold frames from Ben Falk, who got to know more about this than me. It, there ain't a lot of cold frame action going on around here. Hey, Jack and all, Ben Falk with Whole System Design. Um, about materials... Used for a cold frame, um, they didn't say design, but they said material, so I'll focus on that. But designs obviously vary a lot, too. I, I think a lot of things with a cold frame can work. Um, I've tried a whole bunch of different ones. Sometimes they work great, sometimes they don't. Um, I feel like I'm not even sold yet on uh, fully on cold frames in my climate. I mean, we've had some good years with them, and then they're also a lot of more work. Um, because they're not as accessible as a garden bed to work to work in um, if they're significant. Um, you know, if they have big walls around them, um, you can't get in them so easy. I think probably um, for us, and it depends on your context, obviously, what materials are best, um, hay bales, straw bales, you know, you get a few years out of them. They're not very efficient in terms of space. Obviously, like the, the bales themselves take up a lot of room in your garden. So if you're short on space or that's an issue in any way, have a very small amount of space that gets good sun, whatever, you know, that's maybe not so good. If you have tons of room or you don't need, you're not trying to grow a lot, you're just trying to get some overwintered greens or whatever, then maybe that's good. Um, you said it's worked well for you. Keep using it, you know, or make a new one. Um, I like to basically, my favorite cold frame approach is basically putting 
polycarbonate glass I don't use anymore because it eventually breaks in our climate with the snow and ice. And then you're fishing out glass out of your garden and you're stepping it when you're barefoot, which I like to be in my garden. And so like, I don't put glass in my garden anymore. Um, but I like to have raised beds and then basically have a, a piece of a, a window or, you know, Lexan, polycarb, whatever that fits across the raised bed and you just have enough room. It's like a tall sided raised bed with plenty of like freeboard, so to speak. So there's enough room to grow some plants in there, even if they're low plants, four, six, eight inches, 10 inches. Um, you know, that'll allow you to overwinter stuff that'll start early on in like February or March, depending where you are. Um, or, you know, more room if you want to get like full size plants in there in the winter. For us, that doesn't really help because pretty much we're trying to keep actually the roots from dying. Like even under a cold frame, unless I put a lot of layers of remay in central Vermont and the mountains, like the leaves are still going to pretty much die off because it's like 20 below sometimes. So, um, that's not true for a lot of you guys. You could get like the whole plant to live. No problem under a cold frame in most of the United States. Um, lately I did a new cold frame where I built it. The biggest one possible, because the problem with a lot of cold frames, they're so small, like they're not a meaningful amount of space as far as food. So I have these four by 12, like five wall polycarb panels, like the most beefy polycarb, as far as I understand, is made. Bought a whole bunch in bulk for a client and myself went in on it together. So I bought like a bunch of these and they're huge or four by 12. So I made a cold frame with my apprentices one year, two, some, two springs ago to fit one panel, which is like a nice big bed, four by 12. And we earth sheltered it and so shuji bond it like the, the Japanese wood charring approach. So it would last. And I used like two by tens, bunch of them made like a huge raised bed. We'll see how that goes in its second winter coming up. So far it's like, okay. I mean, it definitely overwintered stuff well. Um, but you know, we also store food in the, in the root cellar in the winter. So I'm, I'm, I know I'm talking about effectiveness of cold frames as a whole, but um, I like wood and polycarb, but, you know, straw and hay could work well. Um, I think, you know, whatever you do, just make sure it fits your context and what your real goals are. Um, and consider a greenhouse because sometimes a greenhouse can be a lot more functional. Obviously, it's a bit more work, but um, I think cold frames often just suffer from this kind of like, dimensional problem that a lot of us have experienced in different homes. Like I had a mudroom once. It's like if they made it just two foot bigger, one foot bigger, the two doors wouldn't hit each other and it'd be like a usable space versus like, it's just too small to be really usable. I find that's the case with a bunch of cold frames. Um, this big one I have, I hope that that's going to be different so far. It doesn't feel super different just because it's hard to get into it. Like it's got big sides and then it's just more work then a garden's already a lot of work. So anyway, good luck. Thanks a lot. So I worked with my grandfather a lot with his gardening, but I have to say he used a cold frame, and I didn't really get involved with it, and I don't know all the things that he was doing. But what I will say is his cold frame was fairly small, and the purpose of his cold frame was not to grow food in winter. The purpose of his cold frame was when he started his peppers and his tomatoes and all his plants like that that were going to go in the garden because that old man did not believe in paying somebody else to plant a seed and take care of it for six to eight weeks before it went in the ground. He just didn't. That was not a thing to him. 
So in that time period, you have nights that are going to still go into freezing. That's why you haven't put plants out yet, and they need to be protected. And his cold frame was in the ground. It was a big, giant, heavy, I mean heavy, old window from a building. Who knows what? Some building got torn down, and no man was a good scrounge. And it had a, a block and tackle pulley, that's how heavy it was, on an arbor that held his grapevines. And he would go out in the day, and I don't know, and it wasn't the same, I just know it wasn't the same time. It was like he knew when that needed to be open, and he knew how much it needed to be open so it didn't get too hot. And he knew how, how long it needed to be cold and hit by the sun to warm up enough that it would protect the plants overnight. And I do remember more than once watching him take like four big milk jugs, filling it up with hot water out of the tap, putting them in there on a particularly cold night to help get it through. And I, what I don't remember is I don't ever remember him losing his start plants. I do remember that he always started more plants than he needed in case they didn't make it or he lost some of them. And then he would always give those plants away to neighbors. So that's that's what I know about cold frames. Next up, let's talk about preparing for a hike, not a you know through hike, but a, a, a significant section hike of the Appalachian Trail. It's known as 100 miles of wilderness in Maine, and uh, it is a pretty tough section of trail. Somebody who's done that hike and, and was the end of her hike, and then plus the Catlin. Uh, Uh, summit, which is a tough summit. Jessica Dixie Mills, of course, started in Georgia and then hiked this section toward the end of her hike, and then and then you summit, uh, and then you're done. So if you wanted to know how to handle that section of the trail, there's no one better to ask than our own Jessica Dixie Mills. Hey, TS peers, Jessica Dixie Mills here from Homemade Wanderlust over in YouTube land to answer a question from Jeremy. Jeremy asks, what do you recommend to prepare for the main 100-mile wilderness, which is part of the Appalachian Trail, for those of y'all who don't know? He's asking about physical, mental, and gear prep. Do you recommend planning out an exact daily itinerary, or is it okay to play it by ear on the trail? Lastly, any recommendations on direction north to south versus south to north? Background info. I have done a handful of backpacking trips, the longest ones being four days, three nights in the 25 to 35 mile range, but at significant elevation, Montana, Utah, Idaho. So while this will be significantly further, I understand it to be less intense than some of the others I've done. And he says he's not planning to add Mount Katahdin, which is the final summit of the Appalachian Trail. He says, I've been walking about three times a week with two 15-pound weights in my backpack and around five miles each time, plus doing an extra couple runs slash bike rides each week for overall fitness, planning to increase weighted walks in distance and or frequency upcoming. What else should I be doing? Planning the hike for the end of July and allowing for up to eight days with the first Slash last day, including about two hours of drive time. Thanks for any advice you can give. Well, Jeremy, thank you very much for the question. And it sounds like you're doing an amazing job to prep physically for this trip. Uh, the only other thing I could really recommend is maybe doing some stretching before you go, uh, especially in your calves, because The calf muscles attach to the Achilles, which attaches to the band in the bottom of the foot, the plantar fascia. 
And if you can try to prevent having any issues with your Achilles or uh, your plantar fascia, that would be fantastic because those are some complaints that people get when they don't use them as much as, you know, they would uh, on trail or they use them too much on trail compared to normal life. And then that can be problematic. So if you make sure you get your calves good and stretched out, just YouTube some good calf stretches, uh, then that should help you mitigate any risk as far as that goes. Uh, for direction, north to south, south to north, really, that's up to you. I recommend for navigation the Far Out app. Uh, it's formerly known as Gut Hook. I would get the last section so that you can see elevation profile. Uh, you can find out water information for each of the sources or, you know, any notes like there are crazy bees at miles such and such, you know, look out for them on the trail. Um, but you can check in there, the elevation profile, to see which one has whatever you prefer. Some people really hate uphills. Some people don't like downhills. So um, you, you could decide that way. For myself, I just normally like to go in a northbound direction, but I've always been a no-bo on all of my through hikes. So um, but yeah, as far as itinerary for your day-to-day -day mileage, I would just play it by ear, you know, just get out there, enjoy yourself and walk until you don't feel like walking anymore for the day and just listen to your body. That's what I prefer to do. Uh, so for any of the gear, you won't really need anything different than you would need on a normal backpacking trip. I'll include a video link for Jack to put in the show notes. It's a video. It's everything you need to know to hike the AT. But there are timestamps in the video description, so you can just look at the gear parts if that's what you want to know most about. As far as mental prep goes, I mean, sure, you're going to be out there longer than you were on your previous trips, but I think that you're going to find you'll be in a similar place mentally as you were on those other trips. I don't know what that was for you, but if you think that you'll need some encouragement mentally in case you don't see any humans the whole time you're out there, I mean, I feel like you probably will run into people, but it helps me to listen to some podcasts, music, audiobooks. but just keep in mind that you're not going to have probably a whole lot of service out there. At least I didn't with Verizon Wireless back in 2015. I assume it's improved since then. Um, so make sure that you download all of that stuff before you go. And if you need a little extra encouragement, you can make a note in your phone before you go out there as to what you hope to gain from your trip. And then when you're questioning, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> then you can refer back to that note, to what your past self hope that your present self uh, would gain from your trip. And maybe that'll help you, um, you know, get back to a good place mentally if you need to do that. Um, now, if you're feeling confident in an eight-day stretch to cover the miles that you need to, I think it's definitely doable, especially since you're prepping so well physically. But find peace of mind that it, if you need to bail out, there are some bailout points along the way, like Katahdin Ironworks Road, Johnson Pond Road, and Joe Mary Road. And you can find those waypoints, like I mentioned, in the Far Out app. I highly, highly recommend that you have that app. And then finally, if you're interested, Shaw's Hiker Hostel will do some food drops. So if you don't want to carry eight days of food on your back, um, they can kind of go to a more or less halfway point and drop food for you. Uh, also, if you need a shuttle to town for a bed and a shower, I mean, obviously, if they can drop food, they have access to take you into town um, if, if you chose to do that. 
And also, if you need somebody to like meet you at your car and shuttle you to the other side, um, so you can hike towards your vehicle, then towards the end, they offer that as well. I mean, of course, all of these are for a fee. All of these services, but uh, it's just nice knowing that that's an option. So anyway, I hope that that helps. And Jeremy, I'm wishing you the happiest of trails while you're out there. And anybody else, if you've got any questions similar to this about backpacking, YouTube, etc., feel free to get those questions to Jack for me. All right, y'all. We'll see you later. Great stuff from Jessica, and she's been traveling a lot, so uh, not as active with answers. But she is available, and part of why she hasn't had as many answers, she ain't had as many questions. So if you want questions on hiking and, and, and kind of living in the outdoors, and just general camping questions as well, uh, Jessica's great at all of that. Remember, you can send in an email for expert council members by just sending an email to jack at the com. Put TSPC expert in the subject line and then answer, ask me your question or ask the expert counsel your question and, and do it like this. My expert counsel question is for Patrick Rohrman, John Pugliano, Jessica Mills, well, whoever. My question is one sentence question. Enter, enter, put some space in there. Then give us any details you think you need to give us. If you do that, it works so much better. I've been doing this a long time, and when I get questions like that, I know if it's right for the expert. I know if it's something I should take. I know if I should send it to somebody else. It's very clear what you're asking to you and me and the expert, and it just works better that way. So get your questions into us. If you want to know more about who's on the expert council, you can go to the survival podcast.com and use the about link and under the sub link under it is meet the expert council everybody's there pretty picture of them all the stuff they do and the things they can help you with and right now i got to get on my expert council members for next week i need content for next week i got some but not enough and i can only push them so hard if they only have some quick questions i need some questions so get me some questions for expert council members whether it's jessica or john or anybody With that, let's go on to our next question today. This is for Dr. Ken Berry about something called Blue Zones. You don't know what a Blue Zone is? Don't worry. Ken's going to tell you. Hey, TSP listeners. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Matthew. Matthew says, how is keto the proper human diet if we have Blue Zones that don't eat keto? Uh, there are blue zones where the average age of death is about 100. They eat fresh local foods with mostly plant-based diets. How can keto be the proper diet if these places have such longevity? Thank you so much for your response. Uh, okay, this is an excellent question, and I, I, I think I can teach you guys a few things from this question and my answer. So, Matthew, the first thing that your question reveals to me is that you believe that the blue zone hypothesis is, in fact, proven scientific fact. And I remember when I read the blue zones, uh, back in 2011, I think, I was on a plane flight. You guys can hear Beckett in the background. He's going to look at the, the baby chickens and the quail eggs. Uh, I read the blue zones on a, on a plane in 2011, and I was blown away buy the book. At that time, I didn't know what I know now, and I, I bought it. I swallowed it hook, line, and sinker, and I changed my diet based on it back in 2011. Now, as years have gone by and I've looked into the Blue Zone hypothesis, I have found multiple holes in uh, Dan Buettner's arguments. First of all, 
many of the of the people in Sardinia lied about their age because you get great benefits in their country, and so it is in your financial interest to be as old as you can be, as early as you can be in life. And so they lied about their, and they, they forged their birth certificates. Or they didn't have a birth certificate, and they made made up their birth date. <clears throat> Many of these people were 60 or 70 or 80, and they were claiming to be 100. Secondly, uh, many of the populations that Butner talks about in his book, The Blue Zones, ate large amounts of pork. And they also cooked everything that they ate in lard. But for some reason, Butner left that out. Uh, the, if you just uh, if you just Google Blue Zones debunked, you will find multiple anthropologists and sociologists who have actually went to the Blue Zones and actually looked at what the people were eating, and then they reported that Butner made a bunch of shit up. And I was very sad when I found this out, but at the same time, it doesn't surprise me at all. Butner, I think I think he's an honorable, ethical, honest guy. But he believes in his heart of hearts that a plant-based diet is the best diet for human beings. And so he basically saw when he, what he went looking for. And if all you guys should know that this is a weakness of human uh, nature. If we believe something, then we tend to see facts that support what we believe. And uh, that's, this is exactly what Butner did. I don't think he set out to deceive people. I don't think he set out... To trick you, but that in in effect, that's what he did. There are many doctors who believe 100% that every word that comes out of the mouth of Dan Butner is, is is gospel, but it's not true at all. It's been thoroughly debunked. The the Blue Zones ate lots of pork. They cooked everything in pork fat. They used butter very often. Uh, there are other reasons that the Blue Zones live longer if they actually do, and that is because. They're, they exercise a lot, they have a great community connections, and they eat real, whole, one-ingredient foods. Now, another blue zone was the Loma Linda population, the Seventh-day Adventists, and I'll also destroy that myth while I'm at it. So if you compare Loma Linda vegans who are Seventh-day Adventists, if you compare them with just the average U.S. population, oh, hell yeah, they live way longer. But what if we compared them to another religious group who also doesn't smoke, doesn't drink alcohol, doesn't do any of the bad habits that the average American might do? What if we compared the Seventh-day Adventists in Loma Linda to the Mormons in Salt Lake City? This study's actually been done. And what we found is that even though Mormons who eat tons of meat and use bacon grease and use butter and use all these animal source foods... They live just as long as the Seventh-day Adventists in Loma Linda, California. And that's because they have a very tight-knit, supportive community. They're very active. They tend to eat whole, real, one-ingredient foods. And So when you, when you take out the uh, propaganda and you're left with just the facts, the Blue Zones, as Butner talked about them in his book, The Hypothesis, falls to pieces. I, I hope this helps, Matt. I love it that you're interested in human nutrition, and I hope that I didn't offend you with my answer. I hope that I made you go, wait, what? And I hope I made you do an internet search, because that's when the truth will start to reveal itself to you. Thanks for the question, Matt, and thanks, guys, for putting up with my ramblings. This is Dr. Barry. I'll see you next time. So, 
what Ken said, but without saying it directly, I think it's more about what you don't eat than what you do eat in a lot of these situations. And whenever I do a talk, uh, especially a public talk, especially when I know I'm going to have a contingent in the, the audience that are vegans or vegetarians, I always say the following. I'm going to tell you how I think the optimum way for a human being to eat is. But I'm also going to acknowledge something. And that is every other choice other than what most Americans are doing, which is following the government's advice and eating too much of the stuff the government says not to eat too much of, but the advice is going to lead to that anyway, is a better option. And that you can be, maybe, a healthy vegan. You can certainly be a healthy vegetarian. You can be a person who ends up being very healthy, who eats foods that Ken and I would abstain from. And Ken himself said right here at my property last year, during the, the, the workshop last fall, there are people who can bring their total daily net carbs below 100. That is all they have to do. And they, all their numbers on all the tests, the metabolic tests that Ken recommends, will come in a line beautifully. They will be healthy. They will sleep well. They will be active. Their A1C will be low. Their blood pressure will be where it needs to be. They'll be fine. And he said, this is exactly what he said, there are people like Jack and I, if we let carbohydrates into our life, we swell up like a tick connected to a deer. And I believe there is some variance. I still believe that it will never be a good diet to be based on carbohydrates, that there is no way that 300 carbohydrates a day is okay. Now, when he said 100, I want, you to I want you to understand. He didn't say net. That's total carbs. If you're eating that many carbs, you can throw net out the door. right? And, and so maybe that does work for you. Maybe using some amount of, of rice or whatever in your life is not that terrible for you. But the thing that all the diets that have people that live on them that are healthy, that are not overweight, and their metabolic test data is good, and they, they're not clinically depressed, they're not miserable, they don't have a bunch of things, that, like they're, they're healthy, because I think a lot, now I believe there are people who have true mental illness, and I'm not shitting on that, I'm putting that over in a different category. There's a lot of people that exhibit the symptoms of mental illness that I do not believe are mentally ill. And you want to call it a chemical imbalance, what's more affecting the chemicals in your body and the hormones in your body than a bad diet? And so when a person tells me, I'm healthy, I'm happy, and they look like they are, right? And they get up out of bed in the morning with spring in their step, and they have energy. And whatever you're doing, you do you, and I'll do me. And so I hope, when I, I, hope I don't come off, when we talk about Bitcoin maximalism and toxic maximalism, I hope I don't come off as like a toxic carnivore. I am adamant that this works, that doesn't necessarily mean that something else doesn't work for somebody else. But I'm also adamant that I believe that this way of living will work for everyone. And I'm open to always being wrong. So if I am wrong about that, then I'll default to it will work the best for the most people. And, and all I can tell you is that one of the things about it, and this is I don't think we talk about this enough, once you do it, and I don't mean for a week. I mean for several months. It's the easiest thing to keep doing without having to go out of your way to make sure you're doing it. 
And it's so it is the most sustainable. I don't mean that like environmental sustainability. I mean as as far as compliance. And people always talk about, well, keto doesn't have high compliance. Well, that's because you're trying to make keto chips and keto bread and keto whatever, keto balls. And like, if you just do it naturally, if you do clean keto, you begin to crave the things right now that maybe you're not even that in love with the idea of. You begin to crave them. And then, as far as like the intermittent fasting and all, it, it's not even a challenge. I made myself eat at a normal lunchtime today because I knew how much I had on my plate today. Not food-wise, life-wise. And I knew that if I didn't do it then, I wouldn't, and I didn't want to do a one meal a day today. And the reason I don't want to do a one meal a day today is I feel like I would end up eating after dinner. So, like, I could I could have gone, right now it's 1.16 p.m. I ate at noon-ish, and I could have I could have gone till now, and I would have no problems. And it, that all happens without you having to make it happen. Like, it's a good idea to pay attention to it, but it just happens. So... I can't recommend it highly enough, but if you tell me, Jack, you know, I ate some fruit and some other shit and whatever, and I say, well, track your stuff, and you say, well, my, my, you know, maybe some days it's 120, 150, but my average daily carbohydrate intake is, you know, 85, and my, my blood type is an AB, I'm not even surprised. I'm not even surprised. I'm not saying you might not even be more optimum on a carnivore or ketovore diet. But I'm not surprised, and there's no reason for you to change that if you don't really want to, or you're not looking to enhance even further. All right, so I am not toxic carnivore, neither is Ken. Next up, Tim the Toolman Cook with some stuff on zero-turn mower tires, fuel stabilizers, and ratchet straps. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back for another segment of the Expert Council. Got a couple of questions, so let's dive right in. First question is, do you have tire suggestions for rough terrain lawn mowing? Question, I have about five acres of lawn to mow with an Xmark 44-inch zero-turn mower. I have several areas that are steep and often slide when the grass is even a little bit wet. I currently have the OEM turf tires and would like to swap them out for a more aggressive and stable tread. I'm not trying to maintain a golf course, just a homestead, and while I would prefer not to mow at all, my wife likes a good-looking traditional lawn. Thanks, Garrett. So, there's a few things here. Um, the first thing I would say, and, and I know this is probably not possible for you, but if at all possible, don't mow when it's wet. I've had a lot of experience, good and bad, with my zero-turn mower when things are wet, and then you start to slide. So if you can help it, don't mow when it's wet. Now, I know that's probably not possible in this instance, because the other thing about mowing when it's wet is that's when you're going to do the damage with your zero turn. And again, when you're using a more aggressive tire, you're better off to feather the turns. Don't do tight, hard turns, because that's when one tire's turning one direction, one's turning the other with those zero turns, and that's when you're going to tear up your turf. Now, another thing to think about when you're on rough terrain is the solid foam tires. They call them solid. I mean, they're still, they still have a bit of give to them, so they feel like air, but they are solid foam. This is maybe more for other people who are looking at this kind of thing. Because if you're doing more all-terrain off-road driving with your zero turn, you know, then 
they're way, well, they can't be punctured at that point. So those, those solid foam kind of memory foam style tires are really nice for more rough terrain. Now on to the part that you want to know, what about a good tire that's going to help you not slide as much? So like I said, the big thing is, and you said you're not looking to keep up a lawn that looks like a golf course. So I obviously would go with a much more aggressive tread. When you're looking at a tire that you want to get better traction with, you want to look for something that has more of a, a knobby, kind of knobbiness to it. So something like an, an all-season or an all-weather tire would be better. And I really like a mud tire. You know, they have those kind of knobby with a bit of a paddle to them as well. So take your time and look for something with a bit more grip. Now, there's a few different brands on Amazon. Uh, there is the Grassmaster and the Turfmaster. They're both about a hundred bucks a tire. And you can go through and there's two or three different types they have where they go from just your standard lawnmower tire that's pretty smooth all the way up to an aggressive off-road ATV style tire. But try to find something in the middle. You want to have something that's going to give you some grip so that you don't slide going sideways because that's where those zero turns are the most dangerous. And, but you don't want to be so much that you're completely ruining your lawn. Now, the one that I really, really like the best is the Mara Star Turf Traction Tire. I'll include a link for that with Jack, just so you can see uh, what I think would be one of the best tires out there that you could use. Now, there is one more. Michelin makes a crazy tire called the X-Tweel Turf Tire, and they're like, $500 a tire. They look like those run flats that they would put in the presidential limousine. And they say they are the absolute top of the line tire for not sliding sideways. But I would never invest that kind of money. Just thought I would throw it out there anyway. Question number two from Rick. He wants to know, if I've used stable in the past for my fuel, can I change to PRI-G? So number one, for anybody who doesn't know, PRI-G seems to be the much more superior fuel stabilizer. That's become my recommended and go-to stabilizer. Stable itself is the stuff you find on every big box shelf, and it's only good for one treatment. You put it in, it extends the life of the fuel for about a year, and you can't add any more. The beauty of PRI-G is you can basically do it continuously. They recommend that you can treat it once a year, and the fuel will stay fresh to infinity. I looked on their website and talked to the manufacturer a little bit, sent in an email, and they said, absolutely. Once stable's been added, you know, the year, once the year's passed, you can start using PRI-G and keep your fuel going from there. Uh, question number three, this one's from Nick. Wants to know about the cat brand ratchet straps I recommend. He says, I'm looking forward to using this strap on the side rail of my rooftop of my vehicle. The underneath of the side rail is wide flat surface, but the double hook does not completely grasp the underneath of the side rail when ratcheted. The tension in the strap keeps everything tight, but I'm worried it won't stay there at highway speeds. <laughs> How do you feel about that? That would make me nervous, Nick. Um, this is one of those things I've tried before and you're just setting yourself up for having a bad day. I've dealt with it on the old Dodge Grand Caravans that we used to drive. I always found the roof racks were really wide and those nice double wide hooks are really good on those cat brand ratchet straps. But the problem is they don't grab anything that's really thick. 
And when it's like that, all it takes is a bounce or a bump, and every that tension is going to cause everything to slide, or worse than that, you're going to go through somebody's windshield. So what I like to do is run the ratchet straps under the roof racks and connect them to themselves in the middle. It can be a bit of a tight squeeze, but if you can do that, you're going to make a continuous loop with your ratchet strap, bring everything together, put the two hooks together, tighten them down, and then you have a secure load. I hope that helps. Okay, guys, that's it for me this week. Keep sending the questions to Jack. Anything you have on landscaping, small business, entrepreneurship, DeWalt cordless tools, generators, fuel storage, whatever it is, send them along and I will gladly answer them for you. And if you want to know more about what I'm up to, drop by the YouTube channel called The Workshop and come by on Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday night for the live stream workshop podcast where I deal with repairedness, the art of home maintenance when help isn't around the corner. And I interview cool and interesting people from around the survival and preparedness world and just have a general really good time. So drop by, become part of the community, and say hello. And as always, guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So I want to go on with my my topic today. And I got an email from somebody, and I don't want to go deep. It was a long email. And I'll just say he also was also very respectful and gave me the problem up front and then gave me the details like I asked. So when you do that, I might actually read all the details, at least as many as I think I need. And um, he's God's not not trying, right? He's not not trying. He, he's, he's doing his best. His business is deeply in debt. He's got some other structural problems. And then in his homestead activities, just had a rough year. And part of the question was, do you ever feel like this? Like, just, huh? Yes, as good a mood as I'm in, I'm going to talk about why in a second. I feel like that about my property this year. If any of y'all like, Jack's got the Midas touch when it comes to permaculture, I can't fix a drought in which we have had no measurable rainfall for over 90 days on a piece of land with four inches of dirt where the last 30-odd days have been well into the hundred. I, I can't fix that. And, and my wife and I have been talking about the struggles we've been having and just basically saying, there's some things we're just going to have to let, and I don't mean the animals, right, but there's some plants and stuff, we're just going to have to let it die. I'm about to, like, I have four big gardens, and I'm like, I'm not going to get much out of them. I'm going to probably focus on one, maybe two of the garden beds, and the other two, I'm going to do the Nick Ferguson thing. I'm going to say, you know what, this year's a wash on those gardens. I'm going to solarize them, clear plastic on top of them. I'm going to kill every weed that exists in those damn things. I'll leave them going till frickin' November. Maybe the plastic will still be on here when you guys come to a workshop. I'm going to have to let that go. I have one well. I have one well and three acres of property. I have native trees on the edge of dying, native trees that are 25 years old that nobody ever watered on the edge of dying. So he lost a couple chickens. He said, I think it's the heat. I think you're right. You know, I just almost lost some more birds today because I got a, but I happened to be outside with a hawk and I caught the hawk coming in and I, I, I summoned the dogs and they went ape shit. And hopefully that's going to make that hawk think about coming back again. I've had, I don't even know what happened. I lost half the Muscovy hens that I brought in this year, probably to that damn hawk. We had more hawks. And, and part of that is, Everything's so dry, the, the animals they eat aren't reproducing in, in large numbers. They're not active in large numbers. 
They're probably staying in, 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 in cover more during the day because it's so, it's blazing hot. Right? So, I, yes, I understand. And, and my business in, is in great shape right now. But don't think I've never had a business that failed. Don't think I ever, there was a time one of my partners came to me and said, well, you have to take out of this department, you have to take $30,000 out of it. And I looked at the people working for me and thought, I can't do that to any of them. So I went to our CFO and I took $30,000 out of my salary and had to go home and tell my wife I had done that. I didn't ask first. I already knew that if I was going to make that, that group work, I couldn't take from them at that point in their lives. And, they had to, and I told them I took the hit. They had to know I took the hit for them. So I'd set a prorating across all of them, and including myself. I took 100% of it. And then I still didn't know if, it, if that would that, And that entity did survive, but I didn't know if it would at that moment. Was I taking it for no good reason? I could have preserved myself. So yes, I felt that way. And sometimes that helps. But I want to talk about what's going on this week. And I kind of mentioned it yesterday with Flo. I feel like I'm on a drug this week. And I mean in a good way. Like some sort of stimulant. I feel like there's nothing I can't do. I literally have gotten more done this week. And I'm not done yet. It's freaking Thursday than I do typically in three weeks. I've got a call with John Bush scheduled at either 4 or 4.30 day. I'll check the calendar after we're done. To do another big initiative. And possibly two. And I'm actually willing to take it on. I have got things going on right now that are beyond what I expected. I know some of y'all aren't into Bitcoin, but just forget about that and just think about the fact that it's a brand new podcast, even though it's a piece of this one. I've got people lined up as guests that I can't believe I was able to move on so fast that I don't really have to sell them with the fact, oh, there's 200,000 people over here. I just, there's this new thing I'm doing, and I want you to come be on it. And yes, I'm knocking down deals to help people right now. I cut a deal the other night. I don't want to say with whom yet. It's not really a huge thing, but it's a huge thing in a way that's going to help my web admin over time develop more of his own wealth and maybe even spin into something. And I was able to reach out to somebody and say, let us help you, and it won't cost you hardly anything out of pocket. All this week, and I'm going to tell you why. The answer is Joel Riles, and it's nothing he did. It's nothing he did. As y'all know, we made a barter deal. He got to come here for a long weekend, took him out to eat, him and his wife, and we got a puppy, a Fortress Canine puppy, gorgeous little puppy that we named Bellamy, call her Bell. And that weekend, we drank all the whiskey. I took a Monday off after it to recover because I knew I wouldn't do a good job for you guys. And I still got a ton done from a structural standpoint in the business. We went out multiple times, bars and restaurants. Saturday night when we went out, we took a freaking Uber because I knew better than to drive. We spent most of Sunday in the pool, and we stayed up late playing pool in the garage that night. Really late. So late, Dorothy went to bed like the hell with y'all. We were up till midnight almost every night. And I also delivered on my promise to consult on his business. And I put him on a fantastic path with the assets he already has. And it's not a change, of course, but it's an understanding that this thing is an asset. And it's the asset you should be leading with, not this other thing. And tighten that up. We maybe, in almost four days, spent four hours actively working on it. The rest of the time, he was helping us learn to train the dog. 
which was helpful as well toward what we were doing. And we were just enjoying each other. And I told my wife how I'm feeling this weekend, what I'm getting done. And we both talked about it before I think we've really figured it out. It wasn't that I drank more than I should have drank and ate food I shouldn't have ate. I do that on vacations. It wasn't that I didn't think about my business, my problems, my initiatives, and just let them go, because I do that on vacations. You know, th I get recharged on a vacation, but not like this. I feel all this week like I do when I do like a one-day-a-meal fast for a while where you kind of get that superpower. And I know what it is now. I didn't shut my mind down, but I took it off my shit, and I put it on somebody else's shit. And that's not because I'm a good person, right? I did it because it's something I'm good at that I could do for another person, and it was a value-for-value value exchange. It was a value-for-value value exchange. And when it was over, what Joel said is, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to go do all this stuff, and I'm going to come back here in November, and if you put that down on again, I'm going to be like, I'll do a fully trained dog this time. Right? I mean, that was how much value there was there. But it was because my mind was actively seeking to solve somebody else's problems. Help others achieve their dreams, and you'll achieve yours. And all it really is, it was a reboot. No matter how much you love your job, no matter how much you love what you do, or no matter how much problems you're trying to solve in your job, letting go, I don't think, is enough. Taking a vacation, shutting down for a couple days, taking a walk in the woods may not be enough. Actively applying your reasoning and your logic and your problem-solving to the end of achieving for somebody else where you have no emotional attachment. You activate the part of your brain that does the problem solving, that does the troubleshooting, that does the self-disciplining. Because you're like, you need to discipline yourself on this shit right here and fix this stuff first. And then you don't come back, sit down in your desk or go out into the field or whatever it is you do and say that to yourself. You just do it. You just do it. So the best advice I can give to this individual is there's probably logical decisions that you know need to be made. Some of them may not be good. I'm spitballing here, so do not see this advice. But one of them might be that this business needs to be shut down, that this business needs to go into bankruptcy proceedings. I don't know that. Don't go do that because I said But if that is, because you know what you can do, then you can start another business. I mean, it destroys your credit for seven years, and in a small company, it does pass through to the individual. And maybe it doesn't make sense. So that's an attorney question. That's, a, that's an accountant and an attorney question. I don't know. But I'm saying that it could be that hard a decision, or it could be other decisions. It could be to sell off some assets against debt that you don't really want to do. It could be to let go of some employees that you're going to have to fire anyway, but right now maybe you could tell them they got two weeks left. I don't know. But you won't be able to see it. And what I would advise you to do is find somebody somewhere that wants you to look at their problem and give it two or three days of doing nothing but trying to work on it for somebody else. Or if you can't do that, go find something you can do for somebody else. I know it's really hard to take the time off when it's like, man, I need every dime I can get. But if you were getting so much work you couldn't keep up with it, you probably wouldn't be in this tight of a situation 
So that means instead of working a little bit this day and a little bit that and a little bit this day, right, maybe you could kind of restructure and create that hole. Go do something for somebody else. Go put 100% of your mental focus on something that is challenging you but is not something that really affects you other than it you chose for it to. I don't know if that's a good answer for you. I hope that it is. But if it isn't, I know that that is a good answer for a lot of people. And I, 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 can, I can't even describe the mental focus, the problem-solving ability, and the productivity that I've had this week, and it's only Thursday. So that's my advice. I wish I could say, do A, B, C, and D, and everything will be better. Not even everything will be fine or everything will be okay. Just everything will be better. I don't know. I don't know. But what I believe is that you do know, and you need to come into focus with that with yourself. With that, we've wrapped up another episode, and i got a special announcement for you here at the end. Um, I, I've alluded to this. I've been in discussions with a great body armor vendor. I can tell you now who they are. Premier Body Armor. Now, what impresses me about them is not just they have good body armor. I don't think you're in that business and have crap. It's the diverse array of solutions that they offer. It's so diverse. I actually have reached out to them now that we got this deal done. I don't like to cloud deals with other deals. I, I want to get somebody from there on the air to go over like strategies with body armor because it's not just you put this great big giant body armor suit vest with plates on it because they have that stuff when, when you get in a firefight, right, when, when the zombies come. There's a lot of strategies that can be employed with body armor. And this company is committed to making sure that people can get access to body armor, regular people like you and me. Uh, again, the company's called Premier Body Armor. It's at premierbodyarmor.com, all one word. They have armored vests, backpack armor, bags and bundles, rifle plates, armored gear. They even have medical gear, bag organizational gear. They have stuff that, that sadly, you, you know, might be worth having, like for kids at school. They have equipment like bags and packs that provide shielding or quick deployment of body armor. It is a great company. Their prices in that space are already good. Right, they're not stupid cheap because I don't know that I want to trust body armor to stupid cheap. Right, but they're good, and then ten percent on it, they're great. And again, this took some time. I've been working on this since before I left for Tennessee to get this done. So I'll add to it. We're doing the troll sale. You can get MSB for thirty bucks a year, and that applies to recurring with a discount code troll. And we're going to be trolling the trolls as, as, as the sale continues through, and it's already starting to really pick up. Um, but I can't see if you're going to add any body armor to your repertoire this year that this alone won't cover the cost of the membership. So check them out. Again, premierbodyarmor.com. And if you're an MSB member, and you should be, go in your back office. It's already there. Discount code's already there. Um, just really excited about this. Also, um, I want to thank all of you that have been boosting me on Fountain or on Value for Value because some of you aren't using Fountain, but you're using Value for Value, and I'm the one using Fountain. I'm seeing the boost come in with Troll in them. I'm also starting to see more and more stuff come in on the Boostergrams uh, that, that tell me impact in your life. 
I think it's an amazing thing, and, and I thank you for it. And with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up. I'll be back tomorrow with an episode of Outback with Jack. It's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Show you a better way